If you've got a Bible in front of you, if you could turn to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read from verses 16 down to 34. It's on page um, 1050 if you're following in a church Bible. It's entitled Paul and Silas in Prison. And just before we read it, um, it says once when we, it's talking about we all the way through this passage, um, it appears that Luke at this point, the writer of Acts, is actually with Paul and Silas, certainly at the first part of the passage. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us to Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before fallen Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Let's just pray for a moment. Loving God, these are incredible words that we have before us. An incredible account of something that took place. We just pray that as we look at this, that we may see something of our own stories in here. And by your spirit, apply some of this word to our lives today. Amen. A number of years ago, I was leading worship at a Churches Together event. And... Um, I went to the church that we were part of at the time, which was Stockport Baptist. I was ministering training there. And the church, if ever you've been to Stockport Baptist, it meets upstairs. The main church is upstairs. So I went upstairs to collect a keyboard um, to go and lead worship from. And it was my keyboard that I kept in church. So I carried it down the stairs, went down, put it on two chairs in the foyer, went back upstairs to collect a number of other things, came down to find the keyboard had fallen off the chairs and was smashed in bits on the floor. It was a, oh no, 
moment. <laughs> Things in life go wrong. Things in life go wrong even when you know you are doing God's will. Things in life go wrong even when you're thinking, surely God could have protected that keyboard, saved me a bill of about a thousand pounds, and allowed me to lead worship that evening. Things go wrong. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you perhaps think, I'm doing God's will here. I am doing the right thing. I'm doing what I believe God has wanted me to do. Now, it might be that that's happened in a work situation. You've taken a job that you felt led to take. It might be in a situation in a relationship. It might be that you've taken the risk of talking to a friend about Jesus. And then, for whatever reason, things don't seem to work out. I think sometimes we can sort of carry around in our minds this, what I don't think is at all a biblical sort of view, but it's that if we somehow stay close enough to God's will, everything will be easy. And that somehow, if things go wrong in our lives, that actually we we ventured away from God's will. The reason I don't think this is biblical is because Jesus says the exact opposite. Look what he says here. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In Christ, we may have peace, yes. And that can start today. But in this world, you will have not everything nice, not everything rosy, not everything easy, but trouble trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Last Sunday night, um, we were doing a Bible study, and we were looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this verse really stood out to me. This is from Paul. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. If you're going through the mill this morning, you may not feel that these are light and momentary troubles. You know, you may think, come on, Paul. You know, heavy and horrendous situations, yes, perhaps, but light and momentary. But what he does is sets everything against the context of eternity. And so the things that are in time and space are just little blips when set against the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Suffering and trial are part of experience as Christians. Although the kingdom of God has been announced through Jesus Christ, the battle still rages in this life. It's also worth saying there that suffering isn't God's ultimate plan for us. It was not his plan in the beginning. Adam and Eve, until they disobeyed God, did not suffer. And it is not the end point of the Christian journey. What does God say to us? He will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more pain. But that is a not yet promise. It's not one that has yet taken place. So the question that I want us to really think about this morning from this passage is this. What do we do when things go wrong? What do we do when things go wrong? This week we find Paul. This time he's with Silas and for part of the account he's also with Luke. And he's in Philippi. And they're going to pray. And if you remember through this sermon series, we're really thinking about how Paul shares the good news of Jesus in lots of different circumstances and situations. So we're going to look at how does Paul share Jesus when things go wrong as well as how does he deal with it personally. And as they go to pray, they meet this girl, a slave girl, who can predict the future. Now, in a few weeks' time, we're going to come back and look about how Paul dealt with the powers and the principalities that he will talk about. So we're not going to dwell too much on that today. But just to say, for Luke writing here, this girl is not a fake. She can actually do 
what she's claiming to do. The problem is, it's as a result of an evil spirit. She can do it, but it's leading people astray. I think it's a very easy mistake to believe, a mistake to make, to believe that somehow people who predict the future are all fakes. Yeah, I'm sure there are many who are, but Luke never says that about this girl. She could actually do what she was saying. Day after day, she was following Paul and Silas and this group saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Well, we could say, well, what's wrong with that? That's evangelism. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? You know, if somebody was going around saying, these men are, are pronouncing the gospel to you, you'd think, oh, wow, what a great thing. But actually, it's far more sinister what is going on here than that. We're in Philippi today. It's not a huge city. It was a city of about ten to 15,000 people. So imagine a place the size of Lim, population-wise. It was a rich place. There were gold mines nearby, so there were lots of people who had a lot of money. But it wasn't a place that worshipped the God of Israel. So if you said, these people are pointing you to the Most High, we think, oh, brilliant, they're pointing to God. They're pointing to a God, but his name is not Yahweh, it's Zeus. So what she is actually doing is saying, come and see that these men are going to point you to Zeus. She's basically telling a lie. It isn't true what she's saying in the context in which it will be received. You know, it's possible to speak truth, but with evil intentions, isn't it? It's possible to say what seems to be the right thing, and yet if we look further down the line or look at the context, we can actually see that there's something very dangerous going on. She's not trying to lead people to Jesus. She's trying to lead people away. And it's incredibly dangerous. And it annoys Paul. You can imagine Paul, you know, putting up with this for a few days and then seeing the danger, thinking, this is not an opportunity for evangelism, but it's an opportunity to set this girl free of this demon and stop all this nonsense that is going on. So in verse 18, Paul commands the spirit to leave. But this is where the problems start. He's doing exactly the right thing. We saw Jesus doing exactly these kind of things in his ministry. He's doing all the things that Jesus said would happen. Yet what happens? It all starts to go horribly, horribly wrong, at least in human terms. Verse 19, the slave girl's owners, they're in uproar because they had a nice little earner from this girl. People have always wanted to know what the future holds, haven't they? It seems to be something built into us as human beings. You know, I wonder what's coming up next. I wonder what the future holds. And people were paying good money for it. Their source of income is now taken away. So they tell a lie. They drag Paul and Silas in front of the magistrates. Don't think of like magistrates as in our magistrates in this country, but rather think of it like a ruling council in the town. They're dragged in front of these people and they say, these men are Jews, well that's true enough, and are throwing our city into uproar. But that's not true, is it? They're the ones who are causing the uproar by dragging Paul and Silas into um, the marketplace. And then they say that they are advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept. Interesting, this is a Greek city. These are not Roman people. These are Greek people who would speak Greek. Yet they play the Roman Empire card and say, we want to be good Romans at this point. So they're stripped. They're beaten. They're put in an inner cell. And they're in stocks. Jail in the first century was not like our prisons would be today. Imagine being put in a dark, dank room. You're fastened up totally. You don't get fed. You don't get drink. There is no sanitation. 
There are no rules that you have to be exercised or rules that you're not allowed to be treated in certain ways. It is a terrible, terrible place to be. When Jesus says this, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. What he's really saying is that if people didn't get visited in prison, they would just die. Because they wouldn't get food, they wouldn't get drink. And so often people would be left to rot in a prison. Now this matters here because what we see is that for Paul and Silas, life has gone from being actually uh, free and proclaiming the gospel and going to pray to suddenly hitting rock bottom. And it happens very, very quickly. I don't know if you've ever found in life the sort of roller coaster moments when things are all great and then suddenly it goes and it's all downhill. This is the kind of thing that is happening to them here. So what happens next? Well, what Luke does is he portrays two different sets of people and how they react when things go horribly, horribly wrong. And the first one is Paul and Silas. How do they react? Just try and put yourself, if you can use your imagination for a moment, imagine that you're Paul and Silas and you've been locked in this most horrendous, rat-infested, stinking, smelly cell. You can't see natural light. It's horrible. It's, It's just the most repulsive environment you could think of. And you're there. What would you be doing? If it was me, if I was able to pray, I would be angry with God. I might be able to um, sort of utter a, God, you've got to get me out of this situation type prayer. I might be pleading with God for a miracle. But I think actually the more reality is I'd just be angry. You know, God, I was doing your business and you've let me down. What am I doing in this horrendous place? What are Paul and Silas doing? Look at verse 25 if you've got the Bible in front of you. It says, at midnight. Now, don't think of midnight as 12, um, 12 o'clock necessarily. It's the middle of the night. They didn't have clocks like we have. Sometimes, say, 3 a.m. in the morning. When everybody is asleep, what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing hymns. And they're praying to God. And the way Luke writes, it's like this is some kind of brilliant time of praise and adoration of God that they're having. Now, we may think, well, surely they're just praying for their release. You know, they're, they're, they're pleading with God. Luke never says that. In fact, knowing what I know of Paul from the, his other writings, it's just as probable that actually what he was doing was he was so confident in God that actually whether he was released or not was not the issue. The issue was is that Jesus remained worthy to be praised no matter what happened round about him. You know, when things go wrong in my life, I don't know if you do this, but I go into panic fixing mode. I like to try and fix things and sort situations out. I have an action plan. Paul and Silas are not like that at all. They just turn to God in prayer. And it's interesting, this is in the middle of the night. If you're stressed, if you're anxious, if life is going wrong, what tends to happen at 3 a.m. in the morning? Anyone? If it's me, I tend to wake up worrying. I tend to wake up thinking, oh no, I've got to sort this out, this needs to happen. And it it weighs on you and the stress and the anxiety. And it says the sleep cycle sort of goes through, that you wake up and you find you're suddenly chewing over all this stuff. Not so with Paul and Silas. They're not worrying, they're not fretting, they're not panicking. They are confident, not that God will release them, but they're confident that God is there and is still worthy of worship. 
They simply refuse to allow circumstances to undermine their belief that the gospel is good news, that the Holy Spirit is with them, and that that is far much better news than even being released would be. I love the next line. The other prisoners were listening. I bet they were. You know, if somebody started singing hymns in my bedroom at three in the morning, I would be listening. I'd probably be quite shocked as well. But in the midst of that dark, dank, hopeless place, the praises of God are resounding. In the midst of trial, when everything has gone horribly wrong, Paul and Silas refuse to give in. There are no promises from God that we hear that he's going to release them. They don't know whether this is the end. But what they do know is, despite there are no promises of release, there are still promises of God's presence, of his freedom, of eternity, of hope, of the reality of the Spirit. What do we do when things go wrong? We've already sung this morning about praising God in the desert place. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to remember the promises of God when perhaps we're in the desert. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we need to wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning singing hymns to prove to God that actually we're like Paul and Silas. But I think what it does mean is having almost a dogged defiance that um, that God remains God, even if my circumstances are not great. That God remains faithful, even if the stuff around me is sort of buffeting me from side to side. It's in a sense a refusal to bow the knee to the trial, saying, I will keep on my knees to Jesus. I will not bow to this thing, whatever this thing is. And so for Paul and Silas, their singing is their testimony of God with them. Now, I think it's true that sometimes the most powerful times when we can share God are actually when we're going through trials, actually when times are tough. You know, when, we're, when things are great and everything's wonderful and, you know, we feel like singing praise, actually, it sometimes doesn't cut it as much as when we're up against it. You know, faith that's been tested by fire is often that that ignites other people's faith. Don't think that God can't use the trial for us to share him. For Paul and Silas, however, God does make a way out of the trial. You know, God in his mercy sometimes in our world does do that, doesn't he? Sometimes we'll find ourselves in a really tough situation and then the miracle comes. But we have to remember that the miracle doesn't always come. But at this point, it does come. It does come. And let's see what happens next. The miracle comes. There there is an earthquake. The prison doors fly open. All the prisoners are freed. Now, this moment could have caused chaos. And we'll come back to that in a moment as we look at Paul and Silas and the jailer together. But let's move on. And let's just think about the jailer for a moment. Because let's be honest. We don't all react like Paul and Silas when things go wrong. I know I don't. There are some times when things have gone wrong in my life when I can say or get very close to saying, God, I'm done. That's it. You've let me down. I'm going to walk away. I'm having nothing more to do with church, with Christians, with anything. And I'm just going to walk away and park it. Now, we can do that. We're always free to walk away. But, you know, we walk away with our questions, don't we? They stay with us. We just lose the framework with which to seek the answers that God would give us. So we can do that. Or perhaps actually today you've grown up, like my, my story is that I grew up through Sunday school. And we've sung all those songs about, 
you know, wide, wide as the ocean. Remember these songs? When the road is rough and steep, fix your eyes upon Jesus. If you're a bit younger than me, you'll have sung songs like Jesus is our superhero. Our God is a great big God. And these songs that sound like Jesus fixes everything now. And then we feel let down when it doesn't happen. Look at verse 27. The jailer wakes up following the earthquake. He sees the prison doors and he draws his sword and is about to kill himself. Why? Why does he do that? Well, he'd been given very strict instructions of what to do with these prisoners. We don't know anything about this jailer's um, story beforehand. But what we know at this point is he sees that he has totally let down the people who told him what to do and his life might be forfeit anyway. So whether he just decides that it's actually better for him to take his life then than suffer later on. Now, I think it'd be wrong to skip over what this man was about to do here without just thinking about the devastation and the heartbreak that any suicide or suicide attempt can cause. You know, sadly, in the UK today, suicide is a real issue, isn't it? It's the biggest single killer of men under the age of 45. It impacts women, children, teenagers, young and old. Now, I'm not a mental health expert in any way, shape or form. All I know is the experience that I've had of supporting and being with friends and families who have struggled in this area. And sometimes that has been to devastating ends. You know, every suicide is a tragedy. If this Philippian jailer had gone through with it, it would have been an absolute tragedy. Before people get to that place, though, there is often a huge amount of struggle that goes on before. And suicide becomes the final symptom of what has been going on. Now, we don't know anything about this jailer. We don't know whether his life had just reached boiling point and this was the final straw. This was the thing that tipped him over the edge and thought life is just not worth living. You know, in our country today, we have mental health services, mental health charities, mental health professionals, suicide prevention groups, all who do incredibly good and vital work in this area. But you know, as a church, as churches, I believe we have a role to play when it comes to mental health issues as well. I believe this is something really key. And all I will say this morning is let's be a church family where there are no no no-go conversations that we can have. Where there is nothing that is out of bounds for us to talk about, for us to share with one another, for us to say, actually, this is me at the moment, and call out and help one another through these things. Now, thinking about men, I can speak a bit more authoritatively about men because I am one. You know, as men, we are often not great at sharing. We may talk about issues, but we're not that great at talking about feelings. You know, let's not bottle up if we're struggling in life. Let's not bottle up if we are wrestling with mental health concerns. Let's not be ashamed of being a human being. Let's not be ashamed. If today you are in whatever way struggling in some way with it, with just that sense of purpose, with, perhaps with, with a mental health issue, Can I encourage you, you know, talk to us as a pastoral team. We can put you in touch with counsellors who are trained in these kind of areas. Can I encourage you to to pray with one another, support one another. You know, as church leaders, as small group leaders, we can offer the hope of Jesus and share that through in difficult times. But this isn't something that we can do just as church leaders sort of offering this to you. You know, if you all come to me 
with all your things, I will sink. You know, I will sink. Chris will sink. The rest of us will. We can't carry it. But we can if we do this one with another. You know, all those one another phrases we looked at earlier on this year. If we love and care and support one another. So can I encourage us, talk to each other. Talk to one another. Meet up to have a coffee with somebody you know may be struggling. Take somebody out to the pub for a meal if you know that somebody is finding life hard. Check in with each other. See, Paul's reaction to the jailer, I think, is incredibly telling. He doesn't criticize him. He doesn't say, don't whatever you do, do that. He just reaches straight out to him and almost sort of says, you know, your life has value and worth because God loves you. And we'll see that in a moment. He just simply says in verse 28, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Knowing what we know about Paul, knowing what we know about his hope in the good news, he sees that even in the darkness of the Philippian jailer's night at this point, the hope of the gospel can come in. The hope of the gospel that Jesus says you are valued. You are valued beyond measure. You are valued because I came and died for you and rose again for you. Yeah, perhaps today you just need to know the love of God in a fresh way. Perhaps today you just need to see that glimpse of gospel hope shining into your heart in a dark time. Can I encourage you, please don't just sit and cope with that alone. Let's be that church where there are no no no-go conversations, where we can be honest and open. You know, God was with the jailer that night, just as he was with Paul and Silas, and he is with us too. And what we see as these two accounts, these two different experiences of reacting to problems come together, the good news is shared. Verse 30, after lights are found, the first question the jailer asks is not, where have all the prisoners gone? How on earth can we sort this mess out? But he says, what must I do to be saved? What an incredible question to ask at that point. He must have seen what Paul and Silas were doing with their hymn singing. He must have seen that here were two men who were in a totally different sort of outlook on life than anybody he'd ever met before. Because his first thing is to want to know the God who they know. How can I know Jesus? What are we to make of this? Well, their insistence on praising God in trial leads to salvation for another person. Well, not just one other person, but his whole family as well. Their insistence on praising in the midst of troubles results in the jailer being welcomed into the family of God. We've already had this verse this morning. But Paul, reflecting years later, would write this. And we know that in all things, <clears throat> God works for, the those, works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. doesn't say some things. doesn't say those situations that feel comfortable. It says all things. Even through the jailer's situation, God was at work. What do we do when things go wrong? Will we look for God's hand? Will we look for the glimmers of the light of Jesus shining in? Will we look and see what God may want to do through a situation? Or will we do the thing and just walk away and say, actually, I'm taking my questions with me, God, and I'm just leaving this. I can't deal with it. What will we do? I can't answer those questions for you. 
I'm not going to give you answers to those. But what I am going to do is just offer three reflection points, just just to think about for a moment. Think of areas in your life where there are struggles at the moment. Are we brave enough to pray that God will use these situations of ways of sharing Jesus? Secondly, is there anything that God is calling you to do personally this morning? It may be to have a vulnerable conversation. Perhaps you are in one of those situations where life just feels too much and you're bottling it at the moment. You're bottling it all in. And actually to, you need to reach out with that. Or perhaps it's to reach out to somebody else. Perhaps you have a friend or a family member who you know is really struggling and God is just prompting you this morning to reach out to them. And then the final thing. This is a good news story in the end. Although this is a difficult passage of scripture, it ends in an incredibly positive note. You know, all our stories in Christ, with Christ as the author, will be good news stories in the end. The troubles of this life, they may not feel light and momentary. But Paul is right. That's what they are. When set against the enormity of eternity with Christ. How can we live with the kind of perspective that Paul lived with? How can we try and set our life in the bigger picture of what God is doing in eternity?